I hear the footsteps of a guard, and everyone shifts in their cells. I cannot see them, the other prisoners, but I know they're there. I think a meal is coming, but I have lost track of time, as I do every day. I don't even know how long I've been in here, or how long it will be until I get out. If I get out. The man in the cell next to mine wails something awful. Once he was caught whistling to himself, just a little tune to pass the time. But silence, the guard told us, was required at all times. I don't know what they did to him, but I know it hurt. For days, his breath came only in angry spurts and sounded as though it had to find its way through wet leaves. It gets so lonely in here, and the four walls of our one only location seem to get closer and closer each and every day. Sometimes so close that it is hard not to scream. It was too much for the man next door. He started wailing in his sleep. And though he broke the mandatory silence, he couldn't help it. How are we to control what happens when we sleep? The man would wail and the guards would come. I don't think he slept for weeks. And then one day, the wailing stopped. I caught a glimpse of him out in the yard, tied to a chair, naked in the freezing cold. He was blue, and tiny icicles formed at the edge of his nostrils. I thought it strange that his breath wouldn't have melted them. For days, the cell next to mine made no rustlings, no clank of the tray when it was dinner time, no rhythmic pacing in the stillness. But then one evening, as I stared out my one window into the starlight, I heard it. I heard it each and every night. I thought for sure I would hear him once again, dragged off to be punished, but the guards never came. And it was then that I realized, for us, there would be no freedom. Not even in death. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we, we would be dead. dead. without laughing that was that was my favorite one. Oh, was it yeah oh cool yay that's fun <laughs> um that's that's not an actual eastern state ghost story that's one i wrote specially for yeah this, so. that was my favorite story oh thanks <laughs> hey leslie hey holly hey fiends um i hope you're all enjoying the extra october content we had the best time at our crazy live campfire stories event this week <laughs> We had too much fun, I think. But we, it was perfect. Well, people stayed and hung out with us the whole That's time. True. Way more than I thought. So. They stayed, so we kept going. I know. We're like, well, you're here. <laughs> we're going to keep going until the wine runs out. <laughs> and they did stay, even though we suffered yet again at the hands of the tech gods, but live and learn. Yes. We have figured out a way to organize the situation a little better for next time, and we'll be bringing John back for a spooky winter holiday surprise. Oh, I'm so excited. I know. It's, it's so be, fun with him. It is really fun. Also, if you haven't given our October bonus 30-minute horror movie a listen, oh, please go ahead and do that ASAP. 
It was the most fun. (laughs) Do not miss out. It was so fun. (laughs) Yeah, that was great. And we loved recording it. We recapped Sleepaway Camp in 30 minutes and it's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's really all it needs is 30 minutes. It's true. That is all it needed. It just needed pacing. Just keep going. (laughs) Um, This was a special preview of our new patrons-only mini-podcast. Patrons will get one 30-minute horror a month and one live campfire story event. That's right. After this month, Campfire Stories will be making the leap to Patreon in November, which was always the plan. Yep. Um, We just love you all so much that we kept it going for free for a good long while. But our live winter holiday event will be free to you all, and there will still be special free live events sprinkled in here and there and occasional treats to come. Because we're really nice ladies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we love all of you. We do. We love you so much. We like to give you presents. Plus, you'll always get your weekly dose of We Would Be Dead on Tuesday at 3 o'clock. With the exception of the week after Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> we will be taking a break, a break the first week in November because October has been wonderful but super crazy busy. I'm headed to Salem for a brief vacation and rather than work through the whole thing, I'm just going to let my brain recharge. And Leslie has been working like a mad woman and could use the time as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we'll return full force on November 10th, which gives you time to catch up on any episodes you may have missed. Perfect. Yeah. So go and binge anything you skipped, and then we'll all be back together. But we do have one more October episode. We're taking off November 3rd, to be clear. That's that's the Tuesday where you don't get an episode, and Mm -hmm. we can all cry together. (laughs) (laughs) We're very lucky to be moving onward and upward, and and this step of moving things to Patreon is an exciting one. But if you're not a patron yet and would like access to this amazing extra content and much, much more, you should head on over to Patreon and support We Would Be Dead. Just a few dollars a month gets you so much extra fun, all the content, a little gift from us, special field trips, discounts to our merch store and online shout out and the distinction of being our favorite people on the planet yes and i believe different tiers get different um amounts of prizes yeah mm-hmm. so um if you want to know anything about that you can go over to patreon and check it out leslie made cute little like icons for all of them and they're great <laughs> it's so fun now <laughs> it is it's a fu- it's fun get over there and i uh, will be more active over on patreon also in the months to come because mm-hmm. We figured it out. (laughs) (laughs) And I will be the first one to give credit where credit is due. You guys are really coming through with the reviews, and it is giving us the motivation to constantly move forward and create more and more new great things for you. So um, if you have not done so already, I have my requirement to say so. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. Help keep us looking young and continuing on (laughs) like this. Yes. Or whatever it is. I was nice this week. You I didn't were. beg. <laughs> I mean, you are glowing. That's why. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. Three yeah. hours of sleep really makes my skin look good. Well, yeah. I mean, all that validation. It's, that is true. We did have a lot of validation this we week. We can now sleep less, work more because of the wonderful reviews we are getting. Because we're vampires and we that's all we need to live. <laughs> did you hiss? I did. <laughs> I, I think I want the ability to just go bat and be yeah. a bat. <laughs> Oh, and we're on TikTok now. We're, kind of, we're yeah. used. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to do more and Leslie's going to do some. It's, yeah. it's coming. It's a huge learning curve because I'm a thousand years old and super busy in the month of October. You'll get a bunch of me in Salem doing weird shit, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and the learning curve is real. But that content is coming. I promise. John promised to help me with it. So <laughs> we're going to be okay. That's all the business I have for today. Do you have anything, Liz? I have not. Cool. <laughs> okay, then. On with the show. 
the East Coast, one of the most popular haunted attractions around is Terror Behind the Walls at the historic and wholly frightening Eastern State Penitentiary, a long-since-condemned prison which housed some of the most frightening practices known to the American penal system history. Some of those practices were violent, but far more terrifying in my opinion were the ones that were not. Terror Behind the Walls is a splashy, state-of-the-art haunt that takes place in the old prison itself. It's a stark and realistic combination of crumbling history and high-tech theatrics that join together to create the sort of real-time horror experience that is usually reserved for all of our worst nightmares and people that are not me and Leslie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We love stories, but we don't want to be actually haunted. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) And they really hit all the tropes. Whatever you're scared of, they've got it. And consequently, it will get you. And they can touch you now. I hate it. I I hate it so much. I hate that fact. (laughs) Apparently, you can, like, wear a glow stick and they might not touch you. But what if they can't see the glow stick? Yeah. Then I would shove that glow stick (laughs) somewhere where. (laughs) I always say that I would end up being the one that hit somebody because it was just a reflex. I would absolutely injure someone in there. (laughs) 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 Leslie shows up with a bat. (laughs) Well, obviously they can't touch you now. No one can touch anyone right now. And the attraction is not open this season, which is why we're covering it for you. But um, for our non-East Coasters, like I said, this is an attraction where actors can not only grab you, but pull on you, shove you, separate you from your group. Almost anything goes. Anything safe, that is. They're not that horrible man that waterboards people and pulls out their teeth in his haunted attraction. That's true. There's a guy that does that. I could do a whole episode just on him, but he is rich and full of attorneys, and we aren't. Oh, man. So we're going to skip that guy. Okay. If you want to know what I'm talking about, you can send um, me a message on any of our socials, and I'll give you a link to the documentary on him. But he scares me, so I'm not mentioning him. Eastern State does not do any of that, and we thank them for their standards. They are quite serious about their scares, though. Adults wet their pants. It's no joke. I'm wetting my pants right now. (laughs) Oh, my God. We both just ruined my couch. (laughs) While the actual events that occurred behind the walls of Eastern State may not be as graphic as the one depicted by seasonal haunters, they're still plenty scary. During its time as an operational prison, Eastern State saw over 50 suicides and more than a dozen murders amongst its prisoners. And those are just the unnatural deaths that were officially recorded. Wow. I assume that not every prisoner had lots of family to report back to, so... Mm. Some say the events that occurred within the confines of Eastern State would leave permanent impressions, spectral impressions that wander the halls to this day. And actually, we are lucky enough to have a first-hand account of one such ghost encounter from a former tour guide at Eastern State. So look forward to that later on the podcast. And thank you to my friend Christina for hooking us up. Nice. Now for some uh, history. But don't worry, it gets weird almost immediately. Eastern State, originally called Cherry Hill, which I didn't know. Hmm, Me either opened its doors on October 25th, 1829, and is considered to be the first true penitentiary. Allow me to explain. A penitentiary, a.k.a. a prison, is a place where serious criminals are housed for long periods of time. They are designed to be places of reflection and rehabilitation, where a person can repent for what they have done. The word comes from the Latin penitentia, which means to repent. Now, this may seem like obvious information to most of you, but in the early 1800s, that's not what incarceration was like. You didn't go to prison. You went to jail. And jail was decidedly scarier. Most 18th century jails were simply large holding pens. In this regard, they would, more, they would be more like a dungeon than a prison by today's standards. Groups of adults and children, men and women, pigs and dogs, it didn't matter. We're all lumped together. 
Prisoners ran the gamut from petty thieves to serial murderers, and they would be left to sort out their own affairs together behind locked doors. This might be an okay deal if you were like a giant murderer, but it didn't work out so well for the little dude who got caught stealing an apple or the prostitute with one leg and a fake nose. Mm. Life in the big house was tough for them, to say the least. And that's not fair. Physical punishment and mutilation were common in these jails, as many sentences included whipping, paddling, or other creative prices one might have to pay. Abuse of the prisoners by guards and overseers was not only common, but condoned and assumed. They were allowed to do whatever they wanted, and that was fine, because these people were criminals and then considered, like, less than human. So as you can see, there's nothing really penitent about any of this. In 1787, a group of well-known and powerful Philadelphians met at the home of one Benjamin Franklin. Nice. Not sure if you've heard of him. (laughs) He was pretty important. (laughs) Not a president, contrary to popular belief. So many people think he's a president. It's so funny. It is. He he was not. (laughs) He did do a lot, though. He did, yes. Obviously. And the key and the kite and all that stuff. And that's it. That's where it ends. (laughs) (laughs) He wore the little glasses. Big deal. (laughs) The members of the Philadelphia Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons. Oh, wow. A brief and catchy title if I've ever heard one. What's the acronym? (laughs) um, Yeah, also easy to say. Yeah, you sound like an alien. (laughs) No, (laughs) never. These people expressed growing concern with the conditions in American prisons. And it's no wonder half of them were probably clients of poor old noseless. Just kidding. Maybe. Probably. Moving on. (laughs) Dr. Benjamin Rush, who is known as the father of modern psychiatry, spoke on the society's goal, which was, quote, to see the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania set the international standard in prison design. I imagine he spoke like that. Uh, He absolutely did. Dr. Rush was very important. Yes. He proposed a radical idea to build a true penitentiary, a prison designed to create genuine regret and penitence in the criminal's heart, which is not something you can achieve with a building, no matter how impressive it is, but nice try. It took the society more than 30 years to convince the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to build that kind of prison, but eventually they were able to do just that in a revolutionary new building on farmland outside of Philadelphia. The concept for Eastern State was actually taken from the Pennsylvania Quakers, who had been hanging around the area since the 1790s. They believed that penitents, or those who had sinned, needed to be kept by themselves in silence, doing only simple work and concentrating on their prayers in order to reflect on the act they had committed and truly come to terms with its sinful nature and their own weakness. Sounds horrible, but I feel like it can sometimes work. I mean, yes and no. In solitude, they thought that they could that this person would recognize their crime, be repulsed by their crime, and then find their way back to the Lord. If you've come to heard of like a come to Jesus moment, that's what we're looking for here. Right. I mean, when I'm left by myself for too long, I become repulsed by myself. <laughs> Just kidding. Me too. It's called every night before bed. <laughs> And so this brand new prison was built, and it was every inch the architectural marvel that they intended it to be. First, the committee, with a super long name and weirdly specific intention, hired architect John Haviland, who also designed the Walnut Street Theater, the Franklin Institute, and Independence Hall, among other buildings in Philadelphia. Yeah. My favorite dude, I feel like. Yeah, he's like a pretty big deal. Yeah. I love all of those things. Me too. I miss the Franklin Institute. That place is fun. 
Haviland found most of his inspirations for his plan for the penitentiary from prisons and asylums built beginning in the 1780s in England and Ireland. Cheery places, as you well can imagine. He gave the prison a neo-Gothic look to instill fear into those who thought of committing a crime. And mission accomplished. It's terrifying. Mm. Eastern State is a very imposing building. You'll see pictures. Don't worry. These complexes consisted of, that he built for the prison, consisted of cell wings radiating in a semi or full circle array from a center tower where the prison could be kept under constant surveillance. They are very big on constant surveillance, to the point where I read one source that comments on excessive masturbation amongst prisoners being a major problem. Oh, my. (laughs) I I mean, if you have nothing to do for years at a time, what on earth do you expect to happen? Right. They're lucky those guys didn't all die of dehydration. And not just guys, actually, because Eastern State also housed a fair share of women, Mm -hmm. too. Though, at that point in time, masturbation, that was only said about men, because according to doctors in the 1800s, women were unable to have orgasms unless they were medically assisted. So, clearly, they weren't making that happen on their own. Dear Lord. (laughs) I know. Hysteria is a really fun topic that we'll get to at some point for some reason, I am sure. Um, It was a dark time. Anyway, Haviland's design for the penitentiary became known as the hub and spoke plan, which consisted of an octagonal center connected by corridors to seven radiating single-story cell blocks, each containing two ranges of single cells, 8 by 12 feet, with hot water heating, which is that the hot water ran through pipes that were in the walls, and that would heat the room, a water tap, so they had running water, a toilet that flushed. Flush toilets were very uncommon then. And individual exercise yards, the same width as the cell. And to the untrained eye, this seems like the height of luxury. The world was very impressed. Wow. Yeah. This was a time when the White House lacked running water and central heat. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. This is Andrew Jackson's White House, and it was an austere time. Yeah. And... And here we are over in Pennsylvania giving all these luxuries to prisoners. My God. I mean, what the heck? Land sakes. Well, hold your horses because you know how every murder house starts off its life as the nicest house on the block? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening here. Oh, no. Yeah. If a bunch of people hadn't been murdered in it, we would all want to live in that gorgeous old home in Amityville. True. There were rectangular openings in every cell wall through which food and work materials could be passed to the prisoner, as well as peepholes for guards to observe prisoners without being seen. Ew. Yeah, this is when it starts to get real creepy. This would minimize the opportunities for communication between inmates. Haviland remarked that he chose the design to promote watching, convenience, economy, and ventilation. Hmm. Once construction of the prison was complete in 1836, it could house 450 prisoners. So it opened before it was all entirely complete. I guess they had like a couple cell blocks that they had to finish. And that's where it should start to sound a little weird. Peepholes, a slot for food, and walls so high and thick no one could ever hope to communicate. Why can no one talk? Like, can no one talk ever? No, no, they cannot. Prisoners at Eastern State were expected to stay completely silent at all times. And complete and total isolation was key. But I'll do you one better. Haviland completed the architecture of Eastern State Penitentiary in 1836, and each cell was lit only by a single lighting source from either a skylight or window, which was referred to as the Eye of God. Ooh. Yeah. 
The church viewed imprisonment, usually in isolation, as an instrument that would modify sinful or disruptive behavior. So time spent in prison was supposed to be spent in reflection and and in attempts to attain redemption from the Lord. So the only light source would also serve as a reminder that God was always watching you. Okay. Which, given the activities I mentioned previously, is pretty gross. Yeah, they don't seem to care. No. (laughs) Eastern states' revolutionary system of incarceration, dubbed the Pennsylvania system, or separate system, encouraged separate confinement as a form of rehabilitation. The warden was legally required to visit every inmate every day, and the overseers were mandated to see each inmate three times a day. They were mandated to see the inmate, but the inmate did not see them. Oh. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're like me, at this point you're becoming pretty suspicious of just how good this place really is. (laughs) And remember, it is designed to make things separate, which means... Every single person who served time there was condemned to solitary confinement for the duration of their sentence. Huh. Yeah. It's not, it's easy to not really take this fact in when the language leads you towards amenities. So all you can hear when you hear about the prison is, there's heat and running water and, and everything's fine. But in this day and age, solitary confinement is a punishment reserved for the worst of the worst because it's torture. Mm Mm-hmm. I've heard it to be compared to being buried alive. An Eastern state went above and beyond the call of duty to make sure the isolation was complete. When an inmate moved from one location to the next, like if they had to take them to another cell block or, I mean, they had like hospital, dentist, everything was on site so that they never had to leave the prison for any reason. But when they went from one place to the next, a heavy cloth hood would be placed over their head so that they would not be able to see Another single human being. Oh, wow. They like went, they went for it. They went real big. (laughs) With the idea that prisoners would not see another person until they were released. Oh. Yeah. That's a lot. I know. And it's scary to be. It's very scary. Oh. Just think of how like extremely alone that is. Like you don't, you don't even. Even when you're walked from place to place with the person you know mm-hmm. is next to you, you cannot see them. And it just belittles you so much. Oh, yeah. You know. Plus, there's such an element of unknown. Who's next to you in the next cell? Who's taking you places? They could be anyone. They could be terrifying. Right. You don't know. Right. Well, I guess that's what I mean. Like, you just have – it. you already have no control when you go into prison, but then there's yeah. that little extra bit that kind of rips, like, your humanity away. Absolutely. It's like being a caged animal. Yeah. It's so scary. Guards were also instructed to wear socks over their shoes, so inmates never knew when they were coming. Well, Mm -hmm. that's creepy. Yep. And they also never knew when they were being observed. Right. Total isolation was key, and it's really great for the human brain, so it's a real win-win situation, right? Yeah, it's perfect. I feel great about it. (laughs) (laughs) Except no, it isn't. Not even a little bit, and we'll get back to that soon. The cells were originally designed so that the only entrance was a low door through the cell's exercise yard. So they had to come in from outside. There wasn't even a hallway originally. Um, there were no doors that would lead inmates into any kind of hall or, or – and there were no common areas, so there was nowhere for them to go. Inmates would receive meals and be monitored only through the aforementioned slot in the wall. Um, and may I remind you that people were in there for years and years. So it's just years of this. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. 
The door thing, however, was proven impractical midway through construction. Not to mention it was a hideous fire hazard, and so doors that would allow prisoners to be moved between cell blocks were added. Yay, a win. I know. <laughs> Even though you have a hood over your head, you can take a long walk indeterminately in a place where you are only trusting a person you can't see to guide you, and you don't know when to start or stop. Can you imagine just being Great. walked blindly along? No. That sounds like the worst thing. This is why I don't love haunted houses and right, why I so won't dark. go yeah, they, to Eastern State Penitentiary. So I guess one could say to the prisoners at that point, it just was a haunted house at all times. Yeah. Ugh. Also, none of the doors were made easy to pass through. The cells were made entirely of cr- concrete, and they only housed doors that were extremely narrow and very short, shorter than nearly all adult humans. And this was partially to make entrance and exit a chore so that it would be more difficult for them to rush at a guard, and partially so that the inmate would have to bow every time they entered or exited their cell. Okay. Bow to the eye of God! Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds like something that would leave a prisoner a valuable member of society when they got out and not a nervous wreck with simmering rage, both physical and sexual, who had no idea how to be in the presence of other humans anymore, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, of course. They're doing a great job. Mm -hmm. As ethical as the staff at Eastern State wanted to seem, you cannot enforce constant and absolute silence with only Jesus and a stern talking to. No. As much as they like to say there was no physical punishment enforced at Eastern State, and that was one of their tenets. They were like, we don't hurt people. We just put them in a room by themselves and then they get better. (laughs) That's not exactly true. There was... Plenty of physical punishment. They just didn't tell people about it, which means it wasn't there, you know. Right. I mean, they would talk about it if they did it. Exactly. And they didn't, so it didn't happen. Yeah. So this is all speculation. Absolutely. That you're going through. Yeah, for sure. Okay. (laughs) Let's just say a prisoner was caught talking. Would they be beaten? Starved? No. Something much more creative. Were you to be caught talking at Eastern State Penitentiary, the guards would put you in something called the Iron Gag, which is much more like the Scold's Bridal of old that I described in my last What the Friday. And if you don't watch those, you should definitely start because I really do come back to a lot of that information. The Iron Gag was a device that fit around the wearer's head to its secure position inside their mouth. So it's a strap around their head and a thing that goes in their mouth. The thing in the mouth is an iron horse bridle bit type thing. And it would be secured in such a way that the wearer's tongue would either be permanently depressed, so it's on top of your tongue and it pushes it down, or it's underneath your tongue and it pushes it up to the point where it is constantly sticking out of your mouth. Yep. Either way, the wearer could not speak, eat, or close their mouth. The gag would also be given spikes and sharp edges so that any attempted movement of the mouth would cause severe injuries to the mouth and tongue. So if you tried to talk with it in... Well, you were reminded of how much you shouldn't be talking. It's so horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and the gag at Eastern State, the, the Skull's bridles weren't like this, but at Eastern State it was specifically designed so that the gag was also attached to arm restraints so that the wearer could not use their hands or arms. And also, if they pulled on their hands or arms, it would pull on the gag, <gasps> cut up their mouth some more. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine if they brought these into schools? Jesus Christ. <laughs> Kids would shut up. Oh, man. (laughs) Wearers were often left drooling and bleeding for days on end. But they don't punish people, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like they punish themselves. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, man. Were you on the board for prison yeah. management and treatment at Benjamin Franklin's house? Well, why can't they just behave, Holly? <laughs> I don't know. Let's put spikes in their mouth. Yes. That'll help. Ugh. Well, at least nobody heard about it. Oh, wait. Yes, they did. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. In 1833, just four years after Eastern State opened and three years before construction was totally complete, a fiery public scandal erupted when prisoner Matthias McComsey died after prison officials subjected him to a torturous instrument known as the iron gag to prevent him from talking. The penitentiary physician declared his cause of death to be apoplexy. Although Eastern States administrators were exonerated in an exhaustive investigation, they tried to cover up the death and the institution's reputation suffered a serious blow. So that shit killed him. Mm -hmm. And people found out about it. Good. (laughs) Now, if this were their only method of torture, it would still be noteworthy and the podcast would be done a lot sooner, but it wasn't and clearly we still have a lot to say. Okay. (laughs) Buckle up. <gasps> also, imp- yeah, this is the torture section, so get ready. <laughs> also implemented for unruly prisoners were water baths, where the offended party would be placed in a tub of ice cold water and restrained there for an unspecified amount of time before being tied up outside to a wall when the winter months hit until the guards saw ice form on their skin. Ooh. Yeah, they were only taken outside when it was cold. When it was warm, they would just stay in these ice baths for longer. But they wanted to see you like blue and frozen basically Mm -hmm. and that was i mean they still thought at that point um that was like a form of therapy yeah that was mental health stuff it was like cryotherapy kind of they used cold and 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 mental health facilities to use boiling hot too well yeah but they do like boiling hot and then throw you into like an ice bath which will give you a heart attack (laughs) like yeah and like ruin your skin oh yeah that would be terrible Mm -hmm. for your skin and your heart. It's all bad. It's all bad. None of this is good. Um, then there was a device called the mad chair, which of course is more than your average chair. The unruly prisoner was placed in a chair with restraints for all of their limbs. And the restraints occurred in several places on their arms and legs. The restraints were then tightened to the point where the sitter would lose circulation in them and watch as they turned blue. This is the desired effect. It wasn't like they were accidentally too tight. They were supposed to make them so tight that your limbs mm-hmm. lost circulation. It is rumored that on more than one occasion, when a prisoner was kept in the mad chair for too long, limb death occurred and amputation was necessary. Yeah. Yeah, you can't cut off blood flow to your leg for an entire day and expect it to live through that. Oh. That's done. Oh, this is so horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot. And as if the mandatory um, solitary confinement for every single prisoner wasn't enough, those who just couldn't seem to sit alone day day after day cobbling shoes or whittling wood or making chairs, which were things they actually did do while they were in there. They sold chairs they made. I guess you could find one. Probably be pretty valuable. Were they the stool capital? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. I just, in my mind, it's just the Ron Swanson chair. Oh, yeah. Well, that'd be nice. Wouldn't it? Well, they were apparently really nice. That's yeah. the thing. Well, because that's all they had to do was sit there and make this fucking yeah. chair all day. <laughs> um, but if they couldn't handle doing that and they did something unruly, they might be sent to, quote, the hole, which was an even more severe form of solitary. Now, I know this term is used in a lot of prisons to this day to refer to solitary confinement. Or more accurately, it's used in prison movies and television shows, as I have not actually been to a prison. But I've seen Shawshank and The Green Mile and, like, every Law and Order and every episode of Oz, so. So you know what you're talking about. I know what prisons are like. But they're already in, in like, 
solitary confinement. So what's the hole? Well, it's one step farther. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In Eastern State, the hole was just that. Essentially nothing more than a 14-foot pit dug under the prison grounds. It's like in the basement, in the dirt floor, dug in the ground. It's a hole. Um, It's completely devoid of light. So there's no eye of God. It's dark. And there's no heat or any sort of or cooling or any sort of waste disposal system. And if one was confined to the hole, they would not be checked on by the staff in the usual consistent manner and were fed next to nothing. They could only sit in the freezing cold or stifling heat and quiet darkness while waiting in their own excrement. Some prisoners were kept in there for as long as two weeks. Wow. So that's definitely worse. That is that is a hole. Yeah. Yeah, they were like, well, we can't put you in solitary because you're already in solitary, so we're just going to dig a ditch for you. Yikes. We'll throw you some crust occasionally and try not to shit too much while you're in there because it's just going to hang out with you. I know. But none of these things were beatings, so everyone slept well at night. (laughs) Good. Yeah, no one was sentenced to whipping or paddling or time in the stocks or whatever. So they were like really cutting edge. Everyone that is except the prisoners, because they were still in solitary confinement, which some say is worse than a beat-up mouth, limb death, or frostbite. The extended solitary confinement is what gave the, quote, Pennsylvania system some rather loud opponents. Among them was saver of Christmas Charles Dickens. Yay. Yes. That is right. Charles Dickens saved Christmas, and I do not mean that hyperbolically. He actually did it. But that is another story for another time, and winter is coming. Dickens actually visited Eastern State and was appalled by what he saw and said, quote, and this is going to be Dickensian because he said it, and (laughs) a fact I love about Charles Dickens is that um, writers in his day were paid a penny a word. Yes. So if you read things that Dickens wrote and they're very wordy, it's because he was getting a nice fat paycheck for them. And I think sometimes even when he was talking, he forgot (laughs) that that wasn't the case. So this is what he said to an interviewer. Looking down these dreary passages, the dull repose and quiet that prevails is awful. Occasionally, there is a drowsy sound from some lone weaver's shuttle or shoemaker's last, but it is stifled by the thick walls and heavy dungeon door, and only serves to make the general stillness more profound. Over the head and face of every prisoner who comes into this melancholy house, a black hood is drawn, and in this dark shroud, an emblem of the curtain dropped between him and the living world. He is led to the cell from which he never again comes forth, until his whole term of imprisonment has expired. He is a man buried alive, to be dug out in the slow round of years. And though he lives to be in the same cell ten weary years, He has no means of knowing, down to the very last hour, in what part of the building it is situated, what kind of men are there about him, whether in the long winter night there are living people near, or is in some lonely corner of the great jail, with walls and passages and iron doors between them, and the nearest sharer in its solitary horrors. So are you for or against... Against, yeah, 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 but in a very pretty way. I just see like the reporter like clocking out. I know my my brain was like, do I do an English accent yeah. on this or not? So you so guys do got we not like it. I know. <laughs> yeah, you guys got half an accent too because I decided too late. Dickens also visited several prisoners. I don't know how he got that permission because they were not supposed to see anyone. I guess when you're Charles Dickens, you can get anything you, can you do want. What you want, mm-hmm. yeah. And he remarked to his guide that they quote trembled very much and said quote. 
Well, it's not so much a trembling, though they do quiver, as a sign of complete derangement of the nervous system. They can't sign their names to the book. Sometimes they can't even hold the pen, look about them without appearing to know why or where they are, and sometimes get up and sit down again twenty times in a minute. This is when they're in the office, when they are taken with the hood on as they were brought in. When they get outside the gate, they stop and look first one way and then the other, not knowing which to take. Sometimes they stagger as if they were drunk, and sometimes are forced to lean against the fence. They're so bad, but they clear off in course of time. Ooh. Yeah, so in, in super flowery language, basically Charles Dickens said that they shake and they so hard that they can't sign their names or hold a pen. They look around scared all the time. Um, they just sit up and stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down. And like when they get out, they don't know what to do. And this this all proves to like check out in modern psychiatry. Mm-hmm. So what he saw, he definitely saw. Because as I said before, solitary confinement is absolutely terrible for the human brain. <laughs> Horrible. Yeah. What does it do? Huh. Strap in. Medical News Today lists the mental effects of 30 days of solitary confinement. Well, as many as 30. And as few as one, this can occur. They, they say the effects are anxiety and stress, depression and hopelessness, anger, irritability and hostility, panic attacks, worsen pre-existing mental health issues, hypersensitivity to sounds and smells, problem with attention, concentration and memory, hallucinations that affect all of the senses, paranoia, poor impulse control, social withdrawal, outbursts of violence, psychosis, fear of death and self-harm or suicide. So just a couple things. Yeah. Like, like every single thing that could go wrong with your brain goes wrong when you lock people up all by themselves, hmm. which makes sense. We're not meant – we're social creatures. We're not meant to be alone all the time. Right. And these effects are also called lasting. The psychological and emotional trauma that solitary confi- confinement can inflict is almost unparalleled. According to an article in the Journal of American Academy of Psychiatry and – sorry, the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law – People love their titles. Isolation can be distressing, as distressing as physical torture. So they said they're not physically torturing them, but what they did was just as bad. Right, and you probably would rather the physical torture because at least somebody's touching you. Yeah. (laughs) At least You're having an interaction. (laughs) Yeah, and also that's temporary. Right, it'll be over soon. It sucks that someone's going to beat the shit out of you, but they beat the shit out of you for like max an hour. So this solitary went on for years for some people. Yeah. Which is crazy. Craig Haney, PhD, APA member and professor of psychology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, states in an article published by the American Psychological Association that, quote, for some prisoners, solitary confinement precipitates a descent into madness. The article goes on to say, former inmate Anthony Graves, who spent 18 years on death row, <gasps> including 10 in solitary confinement. Wow. 10 for a murder he didn't commit. <gasps> I know. Drove home Dr. Hanley's points. Quote, Graves said, I would watch guys come to prison totally sane, and in three years, they don't live in the real world anymore, he said. One fellow inmate, Graves said, would go, in, would go out into the recreation yard, get naked, lie down, and urinate all over himself. He would then take his feces and smear it all over his face. Yeah. So your brain's doing great when you do that. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Graves, who was exonerated in 2010, so he's out now said he still feels the effects of a decade spent in solitary confinement. Quote, I haven't had a good night's sleep since my release, he said. I have mood swings that cause emotional breakdowns. 
Such long-term effects are common, Haney said. Quote, one of the very serious psychological consequences of solitary confinement is that it renders many people incapable of living anywhere else. Then, when prisoners are released into cells or back into society, they are overwhelmed with anxiety and they actually get to the point where they become frightened of other human beings, he said. Mm-hmm. So once you're in, like, it messes with your ability to exist in society forever. Yeah, there's no coming back from that. There is no coming back from that. And their whole philosophy was that you were going to be penitent in that time and come back so much better. When in reality, they were just creating psychopaths. Right. And that's, I, I, don't, I don't say that like they were all, cre- they mm-hmm. were creating people that would do horrible things. They were creating severely mentally injured people. Right. They were creating people that were f- more isolated now than they were And probably in. much more unhinged. Yes. If they were going to do stuff before that was impulsive mm-hmm. and, and frightening, well, they are probably three times more likely to do it now. And not know what they were doing. Absolutely not. <laughs> they don't even know what it, what's wrong or right anymore because they've been stuck in a hole for years. Ugh. But what makes Eastern State even worse is that they knew the prisoners were losing their mind, but publicly attributed the levels of insanity documented within the walls of Eastern State to the amount of black prisoners incarcerated therein. Oh, no. Yeah, that is the grossest thing I have said on here thus far. And two weeks ago, I talked about a box of severed vulvas. Yeah. Yeah, they, they said that um, they thought black people were predisposed to insanity. So their black prisoners clearly just went insane because they, that's what they do. It's very convenient. It is very convenient and absolutely horrifying. And what's worse is that society went, oh, yeah, that checks out. And they just let that happen. Society. I hate you. You're the worst. (laughs) But all this horror must have only happened to people we've never heard of, right? Yep. Nobody I know. Total randos. I mean, there's no way years and years of solitary confinement-induced insanity would have made it under the radar unless everyone condemned at Eastern State was a rural nobody. Which could be true if it weren't an enormous prison in one of the most important cities in the United States. Mm -hmm. So, Leslie, why don't you tell us about some of the people who spend time at Eastern State? Sure. Okay. So, the first one I have is Alphonse Scarface Capone. (gasps) Oh! Yeah, who served seven months in Eastern State Penitentiary. So, that's seven solitary confinement months. Yeah. Um, Well, but also, okay, just so you know, his... Feels a little different. Oh, wait. When was he confined? 1929. Okay. Yes. that Some of those practices didn't exist. Yeah. Then. I was going to say, his, his definitely was a little different. And um, yeah, things changed in the 20s and they and they didn't, you know, you didn't have to mm-hmm. walk everywhere in a hood and be totally confined all the time. But I'll get yep. to that. Tell us about Al Capone. Okay. Um, and then I will also uh, mention that in, even on Eastern State Penitentiary site, yeah. and then through all of my other sources that I look through for his story specifically, it ranges from seven months to nine months. Oh, so, so even even on their specific site, they do like seven months, eight months, and then another one says nine months. It's like <laughs> so I couldn't get a straight one, but the majority of them are around seven. So, so. he spent less than a year and more than half a year. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So. In May of 1929, Capone went on a little vacay to Atlantic City. Oh my God, I love your accent. <laughs> on his way home to Chicago, he stopped in Philadelphia to catch a flicker. There, the police arrested Capone outside the movie theater for carrying a concealed, unlicensed 38 caliber revolver. Oh, no. He received max sentencing. I can't say that one in the accent. I'm going to lose it. Max sentencing. <laughs> max sentencing. 
of a one year, but was released in seven on good behavior. Oh, good yeah. behavior. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Some of his constituents <laughs> believe Capone set himself up that he was trying to hide in prison for a few months till things cooled down in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You see, the famous St. Valentine's Day massacre had just occurred that February. Ooh. Though Capone was never officially linked to the crimes, he was still generally considered to have been responsible for the murders. For those not familiar with the St. Valentine's Day massacre, here's a little backstory. Al Capone had become the most visible mobster in America. He worked with local media and friendly politicians to cultivate an image of a businessman concerned with the welfare of his fellow Chicagoans. Chicagoans? (laughs) Chicagoans. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Uh, But it wasn't all sunshine and daisies. His reign was also a period of rising rivalries with other Chicago gangsters, conflicts that frequently turned violent. (laughs) And I wrote violent here. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> My phone always autocorrects violent to violent. Oh, nice. <laughs> Not good. Not good. <laughs> On February 14th, 1929, the escalating mob violence came to a head when seven members or associates of Bugs Morin, uh, which was a gang in town, one of um, Capone's rivals, were lined up against the wall of a garage by men posing as police and machine gunned to death. Isn't that crazy? Yes. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah, they all thought they were being like arrested or like found out, and then who was who his rival again? Um, it was the Muggs Morin gang. Oh, yeah, so Muggsy. Oh, and that's just one of several in the area. But he was like a pretty big uh, mobster. I as just well. love a gangster name. Yeah. <laughs> all the while, Capone was at his vacation house near Miami, Florida. So he wasn't even in <laughs> Chicago, right? He wasn't even there. Guys, I was at my vacation yeah. house. <laughs> Um, But did he order the massacre? I don't know. Even if I did, I'm no snitch. Snitches get stitches, Leslie. But this story made headlines all over the country, and though the Chicago police and FBI could not prove that he had anything to do with these specific murders, they were following him closely, as I'm sure some of the other rival gangs were too. So when he got arrested in Philly, some saw this as Al trying to hide out. Yeah, okay. But... Who would want to hide out in jail? Well, if you've ever gotten a chance to take a tour of the Eastern (laughs) State Penitentiary or roam their website, you might have gotten to see what his room looked like. Though the Philadelphia courts were hard on Capone, the officials at Eastern State Penitentiary were actually pretty nice to him. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, Philadelphian newspapers noted that Capone's cell contained fine furniture, beautiful rugs, tasteful paintings, and a fancy radio that often played waltzes on. Recently, state <laughs> it looks like a little like living room it in the does. middle of a it's prison. Re- yeah, there's like a cute little lamp. There's so and- many lamps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, recently, Eastern State restored Capone's cell to a more historically accurate portrayal. So they actually just went in and did some new paint, like they painted oh, nice. and everything, and they moved his cell from where it originally was, which they actually said they aren't positive that that was even his, so they yeah. moved it a few down um, because when they were going to repaint, they saw that they, when they were, like, chipping away at stuff, they saw that there was other paint underneath and it almost looked like a mural. So they're currently working on that cell to see if there's, like, something else well, that they can dig up from history. There are still, like, religious murals that old inmates painted that have been preserved in, like, the old warden's office and stuff. Yeah. I, I don't have a ton of details on them, but I know that kind of stuff definitely exists there. Right. So they're trying – I think they're trying to work out if there was something like that that they <sighs> could cool. resurface. I want to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Through records, it was found that he had a cellmate, so he wasn't in isolation. It was an embezzler named Bill Coleman. An embezzler, um, so he was probably like a classy mobster type guy yeah, too. Yeah, they okay. probably became great friends. They had a lot to talk about yeah. and waltzes to listen to. The pair slept on cots, split a single dresser, and decorated the room with a prison-made rug. So it wasn't like a fancy rug that they got in. It was a prison-made rug. And a smoking stand in the form of a butler was the fanciest object on display. Well, yeah, you have like a smoker's stand for your Mm -hmm. cigarettes. So his time there wasn't freaking awful. No. He had a nice cell, but certainly not the most uh, luxurious. So there were other prisoners that got even nicer ones. That I did not know. Mm -hmm. Overall, uh, his – and that was written – so in 1929, the um, Philadelphia record did – they – like, they found articles from okay. the Philadelphia record, and that was, like, something that they said. So they talked about what was in his room, mm-hmm. and then that it wasn't the nicest one that they had seen others that were a little bit more luxurious. And what they say? Um, overall, his time at Eastern State was comfortable. He was treated the same as other inmates, but he um, did stick to his work, caused zero trouble, and they let him out early. And a lot of that stuff that he got in his room wasn't, like, right away – they said that it was maybe, like, the last two months that he was there. They oh, actually right. got, like, things in his room. So they did have to kind of – I don't know. They Maybe he didn't even talk to his cellmate. Maybe that was later when he got it. But. No, they were they were allowed to talk. Um, I'll, I'll get into it in a few okay, minutes. But, like, the in the 20s, they, they, they did kind of relent some of it because it was super cruel and unusual mm-hmm. punishment. <laughs> yeah. So it sounded like at that time with him it was a little bit more um, – it was a little bit more of a time to reflect. Like, they didn't have to do too much. And as yeah. long as they didn't cause any trouble, nobody really bothered them. And then they just – and then he got out and left on his – at least with him. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and they yeah. probably had some different inmates that they did stuff with. I'm sure that they <laughs> were compensated for their efforts with him. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, Do you want me to talk about the other ones? Uh, Yeah, but I will say that Al Capone did not escape – life with total mental acuity as he uh, contracted syphilis and ended up dying quite without his mental faculties. Oh, yeah. Um, he would go fishing in his pool. Yeah. That image of him, I think <laughs> Drunk History did it, sitting on the diving board, fishing yeah. in his pool. That's like a real thing that happened. He completely yes. lost his mind later in life. Well, yeah, because shortly after he was released, it was like a year within the year, he mm-hmm. was arrested again on like tax evasion. And then that's where he like spent his time yeah. and then they let him go because they were like this guy is there's nothing left there's nothing left we'll just let him go yeah. home and die there gross sad. yeah yeah go ahead do the other ones okay. this is the, the famous prisoner section all right other notable inmates victor babe andrioli god they all have good names <laughs> he this one was kind of cute too Oh, handsome alert <laughs> Convicted of killing a Pennsylvania state trooper in 1937 and sentenced to serve a life sentence of first-degree murder. Um, He escaped in 1943, apparently by hiding in a delivery truck that was leaving the prison. And several weeks later, the police caught up to Andrioli in Chester, PA, where he was shot dead. Oh, no. Yeah, so he did not make it back. No, he did not. He got out for good. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Morris, the Rabbi Bulber. <laughs> mm, was, was he actually a rabbi or is that his weird nickname? His weird nickname. Oh, yeah. good. 
He was sentenced to live in prison in 1942. He was part of the Philadelphia Poison Ring, which was a murder-for-hire gang led by the Petrillo Cousins in 1938. They appealed to women who were willing to murder their husbands by arsenic and other methods in order to collect on their husbands' insurance policies. Ladies are poisoners. Um, this one's really interesting. We should definitely look into it because it's there's a ton of other information about like the patrol the patrillo cousins and like he was just one of like 14 people that got arrested oh, yeah. in this whole thing but it has to do with like witchcraft and wizardry oh but, yeah let's... like a lot of potions brewed and people would wizardry. come because <laughs> people would come to them and and um try to make some potions to cure some ailments that they had and oh. then in turn they were finding you know th- when women would talk about their problems at home, yeah, this was one of them, and they were like, "I think I can help fix this problem for you." And oh, we should definitely cover that. That's very interesting. Yeah, it w- it was a lot. There's a lot of books. A lot of books kept popping up about Great. it. The leaders were ultimately convicted of seventy poison murders, seventy, and were executed wow. by electric chair in 1941. Paul Petrillo's cousin, Morris Bulber, was among the 14 others in the gang, all of whom were sentenced to life imprisonment. And he gets his name because while serving time, Bulber joined the Jewish congregation in the new Eastern State Penitentiary Synagogue, and he led many services. So they, like, dubbed him the rabbi there. Oh, And he actually had a really good – he kind of had, like, a – not a come to Jesus because he's Jewish, but like he really connected with his faith again, and a few people that would go to volunteer their time there, um, they so really he, connected like, with him. Got the desired results. Yes, but not in the but time where you couldn't talk. No, because it was nineteen forty-two. Yeah, so. that that what it was just a normal prison by that mm-hmm. point. I mean, I'll, like I said, I'll go into where it stopped being that, but it, it was a good long time. Mm-hmm. And then my last one is inmate C two five five nine Pep. The cat murdering dog. Oh man, the cat murdering dog. <laughs> so we had talked about him on another episode. He was my fun fact. But in 1925, Pennsylvania's governor, Gifford Pinchot, sent a black lab to jail after killing his wife's cat. Was it like the governor's? That's what I said, the governor's. Okay. Well, no, word. it was the gov the it was just a black lab that came in and tried to kill the cat. Oh no. Yeah. So it was like a burglary happening. <laughs> oh no. Um it was a huge story and one that caused a lot of angry people from all over the world trying to stand up for the unjust sentence of Pep the dog. Oh, Pep. However, governor um the governor didn't really send a dog to jail. He instead was donating a dog to help boost the inmates' morale. So Very different. Yeah. Mhm. <laughs> So this was 1925, again, um, and there was a lot of issues going on there. And in a prison in Maine had bought a a dog um, to the prison, and it seemed to really help the inmates. Um, they still do stuff like that. Yeah. There's still programs that bring it's big. animals to And inmates. so that prison was one of the first ones that really did it. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, read the article, called the warden, thought it would be kind of a fun publicity stunt to also help with For some sure. good news there. Yeah. But then he just really wanted to, like, change how things were going and help the inmates. Um, so they – uh, the inmates loved Pep, who, when died, uh, was buried on the grounds. Um, Aww, and they Pep. were there were other dogs that were brought into the prison, but Pep was the most famous. Um, I just think it's funny because the rest of this governor's like time in office was spent like almost everyone 
would like ask him about this dog. And be like, I can't believe that, <laughs> that you was put his him in major prison. Accomplishment. They were so angry. And he was like, guys, oh, yeah. like I didn't really and even articles that I read, um, even on Wikipedia, they were like, allegedly he didn't like it was all a stunt. And oh, it's like so no, people still want to be mad at him. It was a stunt. Like it was clearly a oh, stunt. Oh my God. <laughs> That's so silly. I know. Oh, gosh. Oh, Pep. I know. Oh, Pep. So those are some of the interesting inmates. I like it. Uh, I like one of my favorite programs that I've read about is the one where um, prisoners rehabilitate pit bulls. Oh, yeah. I love that. That benefits both of them. It's so nice. Okay. So there's no way a place that breeds madness as efficiently as Eastern State didn't fall victim to at least a couple of escape attempts. Leslie mentioned one. And don't worry, we're not here to disappoint. There are Shawshank levels of artistry here. (laughs) One man who was working as a blacksmith managed to fashion a key for the prison's front gate when, I know, he made his own key. I love this. When the guard took a break. Another who worked as a servant for the warden and reside the warden who resided in the gatehouse slid down a sheet to get out to the street. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The solitary confinement system eventually collapsed due to overcrowding problems. By 1913, Eastern State officially abandoned the solitary system and opened as a congregate prison until it closed in 1970. Putting men together meant they could inevitably talk to one another, and if they could talk, they could plan, and plan they did. (laughs) Over 100 escape attempts were made at Eastern State, but only one man was never caught or seen again, and that man was Leo Callahan. While his escape was the most successful of the lot, it wasn't even close to the most creative. Leo was serving his time for assault and battery with the intent to kill, so he was a serious criminal. Leo made plans with five other prisoners to escape the walls of Eastern State. Together, they constructed a wooden ladder with materials they skimmed from their woodworking jobs. The men used this ladder to scale the east wall of Eastern State and all made a run for it. Four of the five men were caught, but Leo never was. Technically, he is still listed as at-large. But if he's somehow still alive, he's over 110 years old. I love it. <laughs> and good on him if he's 110 and still surviving out but there. But I can't believe I you mean, did it. If he died, like I can't believe we haven't like found his body or ID'd him. You know. Well, that's that's the thing. Um, no records of his death or burial exist in the United States, but it is thought that he lived out the remainder of his days under an assumed name. Okay. So he wouldn't have been Leo Callahan. That's true, and we didn't have like DNA. No. Then. Nope. And I honestly think after a certain point, they were like, I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. You got out. That's all I can do. As interesting as Leo's story is, I know you're all looking for that Andy Dufresne river of shit moment, and I'm going to give it to you. One of the more famous inmates to do time at Eastern State was a man named Slick Willie Sutton, which is truly the height of old-timey gangster names. For sure. Over the course of his criminal career, Sutton is credited with over 50 bank robberies, three successful escapes from prison, and over 30 years served behind bars. Slick Willie became a criminal at an early age, though throughout his professional criminal career, he did not kill anyone. No, Slick Willie was not in the business of breaking laws to murder people. He just really liked robbing banks. I mean, who doesn't? Exactly. And he did so with the aid of a machine gun. Ooh. I know. So he was like... Real Bonnie and Clyde. (laughs) He's a total gangster. I like it. Described by mafioso Donald Francos as, quote, a little bright-eyed guy, just 5'7", and always talking, chain-smoking cigarettes with bull darm tobacco. So he was every (laughs) single old-timey bank robber rolled into one. So he is the Halloween costume. Yeah. (laughs) You buy the bag that says bank robber, it's him. (laughs) 
He is a caricature of a caricature. Slick Willie was apprehended on February 5th, 1934, and was sentenced to serve 25 to 50 years in the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, for the machine gun robbery of the Corn Exchange Bank. Exchanging, exchanging all your corn. <laughs> I don't know why you're going to end that with student. Like, corn exchange student. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Yes, I'm your corn exchange student. I come from corn. (laughs) On April 3rd, 1945, uh, what I, Willow, Willie, sorry, typo, was one of 12 convicts who escaped the institution through a tunnel they had dug that went nearly 100 feet underground. Smithsonian Report Magazine reports, quote, the escape was planned and largely executed by Clarence Kleine Kleindienst, a plasterer, stonemason, burglar, and forger who looked a little like a young Frank Sinatra. Mm. <laughs> and had, yeah, I know, that's a fun detail. Yeah. <laughs> and had, through the personable Slick Willie, may have been critical in managing the mercurial tempers of his fellow escapees. The truth is that the escape was planned and largely executed by Clarence Kleine Kleindienst. Wow. <laughs> I know, the the guy that, like, you know, looked like Frank, Frank Sinatra and was a plasterer and stonemason. The hottie. Yeah. <laughs> and had a reputation as a first-rate prison scavenger. Quote, if you gave Kleine two weeks, you could get Ava Gardner, said Sutton. <laughs> and if you gave Kleine a year, he could get you out of prison. Working in two-man teams of 30-minute shifts, the tunnel crew, using spoons and flattened cans of shovels and picks, slowly dug a 31-inch opening through the wall of cell 68, then dug 12 feet straight down into the prison ground and another 100 feet out beyond the walls of the prison. They removed the dirt by concealing it in their pockets and scattering it in the yard, a la The Great Escape. Also, like The Great Escape, the ESP tunnel was shored up with scaffolding, illuminated, and even ventilated. At about the halfway point, it linked up with the prison's brick sewer system, and the crew created an operable connection between the two pipelines to deposit their waste while ensuring that the noxious fumes were kept out of the tunnel. It was an impressive work of subversive subterranean engineering, the likes of which can only emerge from desperation. As a testament to either clever design or the ineptitude of the guards, the tunnel escaped inspection several times thanks to a false panel Kleine treated to match the plaster wall of the cell and concealed by a metal waste basket. But while their methods were very Andy Dufresne, their results were not. Oh, man. The convicts decided, the, oh, and the wastebasket part, that's the end of the uh, retelling from Smithsonian Magazine. Okay. Um, the convicts decided they would execute their grand escape plans in broad daylight, and God. as soon as they emerged, they were immediately spotted by a passing police patrol. Of course. I know. They did all of that work. Yep. I mean, I would just let them go after all of that work. <laughs> they popped out in, like, the morning sun, and they were like, no one will find us. Come on, man. Do like, it at night. I mean, the whole point of prison sometimes is to make sure they're, like, productive citizens of They society. were very productive. And, like, that was – they worked as a team. Yeah. They got a job done. There was ventilation and lights and supports and uh, – yeah, it's crazy. I mean, yeah. They should be working for the government. They should. At that point, they really should. And if they only kept digging down, I mean, they would have gotten to China. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's that's what I've been told. Yeah. I don't think they would have been too far. Just, you know, another month there, they probably could have gotten. (laughs) 
<laughs> they burn up in the fiery core of the earth. <laughs> For some reason, I think you just passed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're fine. And you end yeah. up in China, not Australia, which is technically on the other side mm-hmm. of the globe. Yeah. And the and the fire in the center would help kind of cut through the hole. Like, it would actually help. It right, would right, go right. a little faster. Yeah. Be faster the second half. There wouldn't be, like, earthquakes and tsunamis and everything. <laughs> no, it would be fine. It's all totally fine. Yeah. So anyway, they get caught in broad daylight, and the 12 men were forced to quickly flee the scene. So police see them, they're like, hey, you, you escaped. And they're like, ah! And they all run away. Um, but the passing police immediately apprehend all of them in minutes. They didn't even get to run for a little Man. while. Slick Willie was recaptured the same day by police, Philadelphia police officer Mark Kehoe. Brilliant plan, terrible execution. I'm so sad for I know. Them. <laughs> oh, I know. You want them to succeed after that. In the 1920s, after a great many disturbances at Eastern State, the building was given over to new management and renamed Greaterford State Correctional Institution, Institution, sometimes referred to as Philadelphia State Correctional Institution. And it actually did make great strides for a time. Prior to its closing in late 1969, Eastern State Penitentiary uh, had established a far-reaching program of group therapy with the goal of having all inmates involved. From 1967, when the plan was initiated, the program appears to have been moderately successful as many inmates were involved in the groups which were, volu- which were voluntary. An interesting aspect was that the groups were led by two therapists, one from the psych or social worker staff and the second from the prison officer staff. Oh, nice. Yeah, so they had like the professional and then the person that lived with them every day running these groups that helped deal with what they needed to rehabilitate them, which is actually great. Yeah. So they went from awful to pretty good. The facility was, um, after it closed in 1970, the facility was kept in, quote, preserved ruin, uh, which means they just kind of didn't do anything to hurt it, but didn't do anything to help it. Okay. And that meant no uh, significant renovation or restoration was attempted until 1991 when the Pew Charitable Trusts provided funding so that the stabilization preservation efforts could begin. Now the prison serves as a museum and hosts hundreds of thousands of people each year. The original rubble and remains of cells, furniture, and personal effects, including a completely restored version of Al Capone's cell, as Leslie mentioned, remain. And every spooky season, Terror Behind the Walls returns for a run of scaring people into peeing their pants in public. Yep. But such an institution couldn't house all that madness and torture without obtaining a few ghosts, and Eastern State is no exception. Most of the folks that work at Eastern State remain skeptics, and I would think you would have to to be skeptical to spend any significant amount of time there, because if you're a believer, you're mm. pretty scared. <laughs> you wouldn't go you're there. Like, this is full of ghosts. I gotta go. <laughs> that would be me. Same. That would be me too. No, 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 no. There's too many ghosts. Can you in imagine here. if I returned every day just like panicking? <laughs> <laughs> That's like a prison sentence like, in and of itself. Why are you still here, Leslie? <laughs> I don't know. I do it for the tours. <laughs> Oh, man, you would have been the most dedicated employee ever. You would just cry every tour I gave. Yep. <laughs> you guys need to leave. Do you even want to come in? We can return your tickets now. We're not going to do the whole thing because it's too scary and you'll thank me later. <laughs> Let's just have coffee. Okay. <laughs> your tours would be great. <laughs> So most 
of them are skeptics. However, there are a few believers in the lot. And over the years, a great many visitors and traveling mediums have experienced what they believe to be an otherworldly visitor. In fact, Eastern State has been featured on the Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures and Most Haunted Live, Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters, and MTV's Fear. Dozens of paranormal researchers visit every year and report that it is a hub of otherworldly activity. But perhaps most convincingly, there are stories of eerie experiences by visitors, staff, guards, and inmates that have all corroborated each other since the 1940s. So people all experience the same thing. NPR's Laura Dalrymple reports that, quote, cell block 12 is known for echoing voices and cackling, cell block 6 for shadowy figures darting along the walls, cell block 4 for visions of ghostly faces, and many people have reported seeing a silhouette of a guard in one of the towers. Footsteps, wails, whispers. The same stories over and over again. And don't forget about the cell block tango. <laughs> That's not there. Oh. That's in Chicago. Oh. Well, Al, Al brought it over. He did. He, did. he was doing it in, in his room on his rug by himself. <laughs> One of the most legendary tales comes from Gary Johnson, who helps maintain the crumbling old locks at the prison. In the early 1990s, he had... Uh, and this is still from the NPR report by Laura D- Dalrymple. I want to make sure that I give her credit. Um, who helps maintain the crumbling old locks of the prison, as I said. In the early 1990s, he had just opened an old lock in cell block four when he says a force gripped him so tightly that he was unable to move. He described negative, horrible energy that exploded out of the cell. He said tormented faces appeared on the cell walls that one form in particular beckoned to him. And that's the end of the NPR report. But third-hand accounts weren't enough for us over here at We Would Be Dead, and every East Coast actor is just one degree away from someone who worked at the Eastern State Haunt. So I was lucky enough to talk to former employee Catherine Enslin. She even told me how to pronounce it, and I really hope I did it right, because she's super nice and everyone pronounces it wrong. We like her. We like her a lot. Who went into her employment, she went into her employment at Eastern State as a total skeptic, but left a believer. Oh. Catherine was a seasonal tour guide for a summer, and thankfully for us, quite a snappy writer. The following are her exact words, no edits. Cool. So, quote. So experience number one. I worked for Eastern State from August 2014 to November of 2014. It is a seasonal job, and I had joined late in the season. One of my favorite jobs I've had because it was just a fun tour to give, and I loved being outside every day. And I loved talking about the criminal justice system and things like that. Me too, Catherine. (laughs) So every evening after the site closed at five, we had to do sweeps, which meant we each had a cell block to go through and we had to look in each cell to make sure there was nothing wrong. Everything was in place, nothing dangerous, etc. It also was to ensure that no one, parentheses human, was trying to stay in the site all night. For some reason, ghost hunters do that on a dare, whatever. Worst kind of person. I know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> also, it's like checking those cell blocks alone sounds so scary. I, what if you did find somebody? Well, if I, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Catherine. So I was sweeping my assigned cell block. I can't remember which one it was. We had a different block each day. I was about halfway down the block when I looked to my left and saw these two white flowing orbs. My first instinct was to think of them as glowing eyes. That was what came to mind. I was so befuddled and surprised, and a chill went up my spine. It was that fight, fight or flight instinct, and because I didn't believe in ghosts, the sudden panic that hit me really freaked me out. Normally, I am a person that sees something weird and is like, let me go check it out. 
But in that moment, I was like, I'm getting the hell up on out of here. Yes. Leave, Catherine. Leave. Me too, girl. We got you. (laughs) I ran down the rest of the cell block and didn't check any other cells. I kept trying to process what it was and rationalizing it. It was a cell block that had a hole in the roof, so when I had calmed down, I went to the area where they were setting up terror behind the walls because I thought maybe it was a reflection of a spotlight. No spotlights were on. Thought maybe it was a flashlight from one of the terror workers. Didn't see any flashlights going. I tried to rationalize it in my brain for weeks until Encounter 2 happened. <gasps> mm-hmm. Two. Each morning we had our opening duties, checking out the site, setting up anything that needed to be put back, but mostly checking to ensure the site was safe for visitors. The site is considered stabilized ruin, so safety is a priority there. My opening duty that morning was to unlock the punishment cells. Yikes! Oh my. (laughs) Which are underground. To get there, you have to walk down cement steps. It was late October slash early November, and it was a dewy morning. I was walking down the stairs when my right foot slipped out from under me. (gasps) I pitched forward. The stairs are all cement, and there's also a cement overhang. In those split seconds I was falling, I was like, I'm going to be knocked out or dead, and no one will find me for at least 30 minutes if I can't get to my radio. That is very scary. A hand grabbed me firmly on my upper right arm and pulled me back so that I didn't fall. I landed on my butt on the step behind me. I thought it was a coworker because it was distinctly a hand on my upper arm. I turned around to thank them for basically saving me, and there was no one there. I was so confused because I'm like, why would they help me and then bolt? I got up, looked around, and didn't see anyone, hear anyone. Nothing. I sat back down and just kind of stared at the wall for a bit because, again, I didn't believe in ghosts, so I couldn't wrap my brain around what had happened. I eventually got up and unlocked the punishment cells, turned on all the lights in there, looked in each cell, kept trying to rationalize what had happened. It was a distinct hand, and it had saved me from falling down the cement stairs into a cement landing. I think that was the moment I started thinking maybe I have to accept it was something that I couldn't explain. That combined with the eyes, combined with an experience she told me she had in New Orleans in 2011, got me starting to learn about paranormal activity. Now I wholeheartedly believe in ghosts. Leslie's hiding in her shirt. (laughs) Wow. Thank you, Catherine, for that amazing story. Wow. So good. I didn't breathe that whole time. No, she didn't. She Ooh. was just dying. Oh, so good. And that was a helpful spirit. That was great. Yeah. So she at least must, she must be nice. Like you, you were saying at the um, hotel and restaurant that you worked at, like mm-hmm. the theater, that mm-hmm. the um, that the ghost liked you. Yes. And so maybe the ghost liked her because she was yeah. just helpful and they nice. They see good energy. I mean, mm-hmm. there were a lot of people that were imprisoned there that probably didn't deserve mm-hmm. all of what they got or, you know. Wow. Yeah. What a crazy job, though. Like, just I listening know. to what their routine is for the job. I know. You have to, like, go and lock that shit by yourself in the morning. I would Be die. like, buddy sister. I know. I know one of us. No, 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 no. There has to be two. That is Go a special unlock kind the of torture person. cells by myself. No, thank you. <laughs> oh my goodness! If we had to unlock the torture, I know. <laughs> and that, my fiends, is the long and sordid tale of Eastern State Penitentiary. Ooh, I like that one. It was like historical. It had it all. I like it. History. I'm left with goosebumps. Torture. Ghosts. 
Al Capone. Gangsters. <laughs> it had everything. everything. Bank robbery, escape. Yeah. The only thing we're missing is a love story. Maybe that ghost was loved Catherine. Maybe. They love you. <laughs> <laughs> so romantic. Oh. Or maybe those two orbs were lovers. <laughs> All we're missing is a love story. So if anybody has a love story that happened at Eastern State, please send it to us. But once they got roommates, there were plenty. I mean, you know, there was all that furious masturbation. So one can say they all love themselves. (laughs) (laughs) I spoke too soon. There was definitely love. There was. Uh, Toast. Yeah. Okay. Um. (laughs) So first to our friend Catherine who sent us that excellent story. Thank you, Catherine. That was wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. That was a terrible clink, but... Ooh, I should call her to write my my campfire stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did a really good job. She like, And it was so kind of her. I just said, you know, can you let me know your experiences? And she wrote out that really great story for yeah, me, so I'm super appreciative great. of her. Um, who else do you want to toast? I want to toast... Pep the dog. Pep the dog, 100%. <laughs> yes, Pep the dog. And... Um, <laughs> Or Slick Willie. Oh yeah, uh, and his crew who try who like really they tried so hard. I mean they're they're criminals and stuff, but still, but they really work together. And they're as a folksy team. criminals. See, if the right person came in, they could turn that whole circumstance around. You're absolutely right. So cheers to Pep the Dog, Slick Willie, um, and anybody else we missed because there was a lot of people in this episode. Yes, and. We have another one too, right? Who do we yes. have this week? A new patron? A new patron. Yay! We love a new patron. <laughs> so our toast this week goes out to Megan Spivey. Hello, Megan. Thank you so much. Cheers to our new friend, Megan. Yes. And um, yeah, to the newer patrons that just came up, um, in probably a couple weeks, I'll send out your little gifts. Perfect. Um, that'll go out soon. And um, for anyone listening... Now, we'll probably have already sent an email about our trip coming yes. up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and just look on our Patreon page as well. You'll see some posts about it. Yeah, our trip is this coming weekend um, in the Pine Barrens. So if you are coming on that trip, um, there will be more information. It's going to be super fun. Mm-hmm. We can't wait to hang out with some of you guys, tell scary stories in the woods. We will not get lost this time. No. I promise. <laughs> and even if we do... <laughs> It'll be a great time. We'll bring snacks and this time water. we'll bring snacks. Yeah, yeah. We we got lost, but we had a lot of fun. So yeah. either way, you're covered. And we weren't lost, lost. No, we, we were just lost. on the wrong path. Yeah, we <laughs> Which just happens to us all. Listen, guys, not pink. Just yeah. not pink. Stay away from pink, and you'll be fine. And if we were left alone in the maddening silence, where time loses all meaning and other people are reduced to the whispers of ghosts. We would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Looking down these dreary passages, the dull repose and quiet that prevails is awful. 
Occasionally, there is a drowsy sound from some lone weaver's shuttle or shoemaker's last, but it is stifled by the thick walls and heavy dungeon door, and only serves to make the general stillness more profound. Over the head and face of every prisoner who comes into this melancholy house, a black hood is drawn, and in this dark shroud, an emblem of the curtain dropped between him and the living world. He is led to the cell from which he never again comes forth, until his whole term of imprisonment has expired. He is a man buried alive, to be dug out in the slow round of years. And though he lives to be in the same cell ten weary years, he has no means of knowing, down to the very last hour, in what part of the building it is situated, what kind of men are there about him, whether in the long winter night there are living people near, or is in some lonely corner of the great jail, with walls and passages and iron doors between them, and the nearest sharer in its solitary horrors.